Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Um, today, we actually have a very special episode. Um, I say that a lot, but we have a lot of really special people on here, so I, I get super excited. But I'm, I've been really looking forward to this one. Um, so we've had a number of people reaching out, requesting, um, you know, how does live ops work within the context of Web3 games? And even more specifically, how is Splinterlands doing it? And we've been lucky enough to uh, have uh, Patrick uh, Gorel on the show with us here today, who is the CTO of Splinterlands. So we're going to dive into all things Web3, what they're doing from a live ops perspective, um, how the blockchain itself can actually impact engagement and, you know, how to plan around that, like your live ops calendars, all sorts of fun stuff. But before we get into all that good stuff, um, Patrick, I always like to just ask, like, what's your story? Like, how'd you get into games? How'd you get into Web3? And, and, and what are you up to today? I appreciate it. And Matt, thanks for being a host today. Um, yeah, my story doesn't actually start in gaming at all. I mean, when I was early on, I, I got into finance and was very successful in finance. Uh, I decided, well, I didn't really decide market conditions because this was all during like the mortgage crisis back in 2008, 2009, that I wanted to pursue something a little different and a little bit more constructive because passing paper around wasn't really my thing. It, it was fun and it was profitable, but uh, I like building things. I like being a creator. So I went into engineering. I actually taught myself how to program um, just from reading books and you know, sitting down, taking the time to understand how data work and how information work and how, um, you know, building systems works. And then I started getting jobs working in technology, probably the, 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 one of the best things that happened to me was I got picked up by a company called speaker in Hollywood, which was ended up becoming like the world's largest private aggregator of social media information. So mm -hmm. we would just rip entire copies of like social networks. And we were also the largest influencer network as well. Um, and in that I kind of, uh, I got a lot of exposure into growth and how influence uh, worked for the most part and how social media platforms uh, were, you know, basically crushing the original media industry. Um, and then while that was happening, I also got it back into trade and finance and fell in love with blockchain. Uh, not so much the cryptocurrency and speculative side, but really more of the information and like the use cases that came from decentralization and the transparency of information that came from that as well. So uh, I started working heavily in the data science portions of crypto. Um, I went to work, I developed a company called FRST, which was an uh, analytics platform for watching all of the transactions on uh, these networks, on decentralized networks. Ended up working with a bunch of really large high-frequency trading funds um, out in Chicago. Uh, a lot of them, you know, some of the biggest high-frequency trading funds in the world. Um, and, you know, was exposed to probably the more, uh, I would say, transaction-heavy side of the industry and the scale uh, that was required to run operations like this. Because what we found out is blockchains are like social networks of value. So you could see where all of the value is going because they're transparent, right? So as long as yeah. you know what those relationships are, um, then you can start to make assessments about what's moving towards, you know, what value is going towards certain protocols or certain tokens or, you know, certain trade strategies that happen like arbitrage and things like that. So with the idea that what we basically did was found all of the most profitable wallets um, and just followed what they did and then would try to beat them at their own game. That was basically it. And, and did it at scale. Uh, and so um, after that, uh, I went into energy for a little while, uh, but was still heavily uh, scoped out on working on products like Uniswap, which was decentralized exchanges. Um, you know, building a lot of contracts, uh, working on the technology, mostly Solidity, uh, working on networks too. And um, I was at NFTLA and I was approached by their uh, former CTO uh, at Splinterlands while I was walking around and we just hit it off right off the bat. And I knew a lot of the issues that they were facing from scaling a blockchain application. Mm -hmm. um, I knew how to handle because I'd been there before. I had already done a lot of this stuff in the past, you know, dealing with sites that get massive amounts of traffic or having to big economics into your overall strategy when economics for certain industries was never really something you had to think about, right? Um, which we would call like tokenomics, right? Uh, so 
you know, after a while in trying to understand the, the landscape, when I was introduced to Splinterlands, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I used to play Magic the Gathering when I was younger, right? And I still have a whole collection of cards, my alpha cards. Um, I love that kind of stuff, right? And uh, when I started playing Splinterlands, I was like, oh my gosh. You know, you realize that like you can compete in a world of AAA games, right? But there's something about like more strategy focused, less about the design. Or the, I would say about the interface, let's say. Like interface isn't the most important thing, even though it is considered to be like the heavyweight yeah. uh, in game design, right? Um, but a lot of people really weren't finding the connectivity of those types of games, and it's not for everybody, right? Uh, and what Splinterlands tapped into was really the same kind of uh, feeling that I would get playing the Magic Gathering with my friends back in the day. And it's a lot more communal um, in the sense that, like, you sit there and you take your time to think about things. It's not on edge all the time. You can be very strategic, kind of sit down and build. Uh, for for folks that maybe aren't familiar with Splinterlands, do you want to give like a high level, like what, what's the game about? Like what, what do you do with it? Yeah, absolutely. So Splinterlands is a trading card game that's hosted on blockchain. And we're on a, a chain called Hive, which is a little obscure. It used to be, uh, it, it forked off from Steam originally. And the company was originally called Steam Monsters. But it is a trading card game very similar to like Magic the Gathering uh, or, you know, if you've ever played Pokemon in, in a sense, right? We have our own set of characters. All of the cards and all of the assets in the game are tradable um, assets that we track. And we actually keep, you know, most of the assets or all of the assets are tracked on chain, uh, meaning that they are blockchain assets. They can be fungible or non-fungible tokens that can be used in the game to build your decks, to go in battle, and to basically become a more prolific player. You know, earn your way up through the ranks to become a much more progressive player. Um, on average, we have about, well, I would say in our peak, we were running about 250,000 players a day. Um, overall, I think we're about to settle on our fourth, our four, yeah, four billion battles fought. Um, so on heaviest transaction days, we'll have more transactions in our game and on chain than all the Ethereum and all the tokens on Ethereum. So we've been pushing like 14, 15 million transactions a day. Wow. Just, it's very impressive, right? So. Uh, architecture, there's a lot of architecture that goes into this. There's a lot of uh, game design in the economy side, uh, which I had to become very familiar with. I wasn't used to it. Um, th these metrics have helped build the game and actually make the game, uh, I would say, uh, re retained value even through bear markets that we have to deal with in crypto, right? So it, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, everybody goes through parabolic spikes. There's no doubt about it. That's just kind of how crypto is. Uh, because, you know, it's a lot of fear of missing out or what we would call a reflexive market. But um, yeah, the idea is to not lose because of that. Like the, those events shouldn't be what sets the tone for the company moving forward. So I think what they've done, uh, you know, previously is really focus on just making sure that, you know, it's a, it's a real audience base that we're not getting botted heavily. That's been one of my major focuses. Uh, as well as trying to make sure that the assets are constantly in use, that they always have a use case in the ecosystem as well. Okay. I have so many questions, but you talked about bots. And I've yeah. heard a lot of people just say like, hey, most of these users on Splinterlands are bots. Like, how do you identify if someone is a bot or it's just somebody who loves the game and is playing it a lot? So originally they had opened it up. Uh, and had an API where a lot of the transactions happen, right? So yeah, th there's really nothing you can do. And if you switch to something that is fully uh, blockchain and decentralized, uh, eventually when you start submitting all of your game information on chain, it's it's a, it's technically a, an open market, right? Anybody can do anything at that point. Like everybody has access to the same information, uh, even though they can't sign things on your behalf, uh, you can build infrastructure on top of it. So what ended up happening was a lot of guilds would get together, they would build applications, combine their cards together, create accounts, and go out and try to serve and, and try to win trade against themselves in order to bolster up their position in the game. Yeah, we've been we've been fighting hard against that, mostly trying to focus on making sure that the interface is where most people interact, right? A lot of the stuff we can't shut down because we have, you know, core components of our market, sorry, our markets and other infrastructure that we have to use. 
Uh, and it's also hard for us to control information because everything gets submitted. And it's not all of the game transactions, but most of the asset transactions get submitted on chain. So you can kind of, it's like, uh, how do I say this? It's, everything is stateful, right? So you have to assume that everybody has access to the same information that you do um, and can use that against you, right? Mm. So, you know, I don't want to say that there's a lot of obfuscation that goes into it because it's not really our goal is to make the information obscure. But, uh, you know, other than that, you have to focus on making a real live player. Uh, uh, you, know, you want to make sure that your audience is focused on real live play. Uh, that, you know, I guess in a sense, too, uh, the economics play into this. Like, because it's so inexpensive to transact on Hive, you don't have to pay for transaction fees. Um, it does make it very easy for, you know, electronic uh, interfaces to come in and start, you know, trading and, and tracking, um, you know, different, I would say, for the most part, they'd be tracking other players to see how they're doing and see where they're going, uh, whether they're ranking up or leveling down, right? Uh, a lot of this also goes into the actual mechanics of, like, how our ranking system works as well, too, right? So... Uh, we had issues, especially early on with bots trying to do win trades. So they would purposely lose to themselves in order to bolster up their accounts or, or even purposely lose to themselves so that they could fall down a couple ranks and then start taking advantage of players who have uh, less capacity to win those ranks, you know, win at those levels. So it, it's tough. There's a lot of different vectors that we have to be aware of. On top of that, we have to, you know, there's a whole lot of, things that outside of normal game you don't have to worry about like we have to go through certifications we have to worry about kyc aml all of those points too so there, i mean i can go into depth about the the technicals behind like the architecture and things that we have to deal with um, but it is it is different than traditional gaming uh, by far let's talk a little bit about running the game it definitely sounds like there's some, you know, unique challenges that come with it. Um, so in traditional, so Splinterlands is a mobile game, right? So we'll talk mostly about mobile games. But in the world of mobile games, um, if you look at the top grossing, I don't know, 100, 1,000, wherever you want to draw the line, um, probably an average of 50, 60% of the revenue, sometimes even upwards of 80% of a game's revenue comes from what we call live ops or these, you know, limited time, you know, events, whether they're daily quests or like some special tournament or special offers or a number of unique things, basically you know, some, some type of surprise or change interaction that comes as the games run just because it's, you know, more cost effective for us to continue to push out new interesting content to players rather than, you know, pushing out our Diablo one and then just leaving it there kind of stale. Um, I, I think Magic the Gathering is probably the best example of live ops as they've been doing it for, again, like, what, 30, 40 years or whatever, where you know, every three months they push out another new set of, you know, cards. Oftentimes those cards will have new mechanics in them. How they come up with some of these mechanics, I don't know. They're they're wonderful. Um, but they, they push out these new mechanics, which will oftentimes make some of the old, you know, meta obsolete because they can't compete with this new mechanic. And it kind of cycles through it, which does a few things. It like encourages people to continue to spend money buying like the new mechanics. But it also like gets rid of that stale feeling where the game continues to feel like new and exciting. Oh, I have to learn this new mechanic and how to combat it and how to beat it and different things like that. So it keeps it exciting. Um, so that's more of like the traditional world. Now we're talking blockchain and stuff like how do you guys think about live ops or how is it different? Is it exactly the same? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was amazed when I saw how Splinterlands was doing it when I was first introduced to um, the platform. And, and just to touch on a point, I think only about like, two to three percent of our total traffic comes from mobile almost everything is still web-based uh and i would say a majority of our users are going to be web focused but we do have the mobile app which does encompass uh some of the usage um we had about uh, let me just kind of back up the first three what we would call our pack openings that i was a part of when we would launch new products at Splinterlands. Um, the first three that I was a part of when we launched new card sets and you have to go and open your pack and go through the whole thing. 
Um, I think we had sold more than $2 million worth of packs in the first minute on all three of them, right? So there's a huge demand for these things. And one of the things that Splinterlands has kind of cultivated was really this idea that um, based on some, you know, uh, leveling up of your cards, you have to burn cards in order to, to make them go up to the next level, to make them stronger, you know, a stronger character in your deck, right? Um, so what happens is a lot of our lower level cards end up getting burnt to create higher level cards, right? So let's say if it's a 10 to 1 ratio and it takes 10 uh, level 1 cards to make a level 2 card, right? Then you're going to lose 9 cards overall. From You're going to lose all 10 from that level, but you're going to lose 9 cards from the ecosystem by doing that, right? So what, en what ends up happening at the end of almost all of our pack sales, because the pack sale runs for a limited series, like you were saying, um, is that uh, burning cards creates, you know, more of an opportunity for people to open up packs at a profit, right? So that's like one mechanic that is built into the game. If you, if you make it so that you have to burn cards in order to level up, then as people are burning cards, the older and lower level cards become more and more rare over time incentivizing people to buy packs, open them, and sell those cards, uh, you know, hopefully uh, for more than what they had originally purchased them for. Uh, Interesting. Other than that, yeah, that's like, that's just one economic factor that goes into it, right? Um, there's a lot of other things that you can do too that enhance that. So like you can have secondary tokens in your ecosystem or governance tokens that also apply to how like maybe a DAO votes, right? Um, we do have a DAO, which is part of the Splinterlands ecosystem. Um, but, you know, those are all separate entities in the in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but you can use those tokens in order to purchase packs, right? Which means that token also has a derived value from this. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that can kind of go into that. What you'll see is, uh, you know, when you start to get the scale, it's about secondary markets, right? Uh, secondary markets are great because they set a secondary price point. And it also creates opportunity for arbitrage where people can come in and sell assets for a higher price than what they bought them for somewhere else, right? And so you get all of the secondary market activity that starts to happen too. And even though we're not really charging on any, you know, we don't make any money based on volume. Uh, the volume is great for the ecosystem. It's great for liquidity. It's great for bringing new players in, right? Because people will notice it. So... That's another thing that kind of has a bearing on what we have to do. We have to make sure that our markets are active all the time, right? Um, that, to me, is also one of the big, un like, a lot of people don't understand how much work, time, and effort goes into understanding how those markets work, right? The real economics. Mm -hmm. I would just say, like, probably the biggest driving factor for crypto is the economic portion of it. It's not even necessarily, like, the exclusivity or the, the gameplay for the most part, but it is really the economics of it. Because it's something you know far more tangible than you would get in from a traditional game. Uh, another thing that we focus on all the time is uh, we have, a, you know, we start out really easy. Like being a card game and a trading card game and an auto battler is very generic. Like it, it it doesn't require that much of you. You know, it's not really physically taxing on you, right? Like some other games, we have to sit there for like hours and yes. uh, you know you're, you're high strung the whole time, right? But as we start to develop out our ecosystem and, and build onto it, what we're starting to notice is there's a lot of, um, what we try to avoid is you had to be there to understand the context and you had to be a part of it in order to know what's going on, right? Um, and when I say that, it's like, as a game grows out, uh, people don't understand what certain functions of it operate, how they operate, why they are the way they are, right? What the incentives are for it. So, we try to make it as natural as possible, but it is still pretty tough. And being in Web3, it's also very limited uh, because you have this extra layer of security that you have to wrap around everything, right? You have to be much more aware of, uh, you know, if you're dropping tokens or if you're staking contracts or if you have liquidity pools that are open, that there, you know, there's financial ramifications for a lot of the things that could happen. Right. It may have, you know, some unintended consequence somewhere else that you're not familiar with. Um, so uh, one of the things that we are constantly trying to do is try to find ways for people to lock assets to something. Right. So rather than having a lot of things in play, it's kind of locking them to make sure that they're out of play. But, you know, you still own them and you can still recall them if you need to and use them for something else. 
But that also helps us try to stabilize a lot of the mechanisms behind the scenes, right? So we can have like a staking contract where you got to stake assets to, I don't know, a land token, right? And on that land token, they can harvest resources, things of that nature, right? That's one of the big, um, I would say, stories that we have kind of carrying through our ecosystem right now. So, you know, it, it just depends. And 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 after being through this and going through this with Twinlands and being a part of this whole entire process, um, another thing to consider is the fact that like the infrastructure operates very differently than traditional games too. So when we're doing you know, as you would say, like in, as our live operations, a lot of these smart contracts are up there forever. Like if you're talking about Ethereum or EVM chain, yeah. right? Yeah. Like those contracts are up there forever and can't take them down unless you have, you have like shutoff privileges on them, right? But um, it's very hard to recall the immutability um, and have that work towards like, a, a you know, if you're trying to make a five-year game plan and you're building it off of smart contracts that are static. So you guys can actually like change them or have them expire or whatnot? Because that, that was one of the biggest things that I was like confused with is like, how do you set something that legitimately, like you look at any game over time, like World of Warcraft, how many times have they rebalanced something or, you know, move something up or down? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, how do you guys do that in the blockchain? It, it, it all comes down to, uh, well, the game mechanics operate independently of most of our like long-term, I would say any of our smart contracts that we have on other chains. Like we, we, we try to focus most of our assets that are used in the game on Hive, but we have bridges out to most of the Ethereum virtual network machine, you know, chains that are out there. So um, it, it's tough. You can make smart contracts and it, this isn't hard to do, but you can make smart contracts that are upgradable um, so you can actually, you know, upgrade the contracts over time. And that's something that we've uh, messed around with in the past. Uh, we launched our first real like traditional ERC721 uh, non-fungible token called Rooney's last year. Um, and we had to bridge them back into the game so that they could become your PFPs in the actual game, right? Uh, but those Rooney contracts, you know, it originally had started out as uh, what we would call like an ERC1155 uh, multi-token standard and we had to convert it because we were working with Coinbase or not Coinbase, but uh, uh, OpenSea, right? And they required to have non-fungible tokens. So when we made that adjustment and we had to think again, like, okay, uh, we're stuck to this contract type. It's not really what we wanted, but it's what we have to use for now. Uh, so we have to think about how we're going to adjust that over the long term using different contracts and different staking mechanisms to support our use case uh, later down the road. Does that make sense? So there's a lot of planning that goes into the actual smart contract side of it because you have to think about, you know, if conditions change, what are our options and what can we do to save ourselves the headache in the future? Very interesting. And it almost seems like a lot of your success with your live ops has been some of those core economic decisions that you made at the beginning, which was like figuring out, hey, we want players to have to burn, you know, nine cards to get to that 10th one so that they want to do packs so that when there's a new thing that comes out, I have an incentive to actually like spend on those. Right. Yeah. So uh, one of our founders, Matt is like phenomenal doing this. He like, he's been ingrained in most of the economics of Splinterlands. Uh, and been really kind of the critical piece behind the scenes because uh, he was part of the original. You know, he was, he's, part of the original plan. I mean, it is the original plan. Um, so when you, when you think about it, like, you have to have a lot of understanding of, uh, like, again, like this is one of the things that we try to avoid, but you know, why is this here? Why is this a feature in the game? Is it really necessary? Right. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of how it's come over time. We've been around since 2017. Um, and we've been through quite a few bear markets. Right. And so, you know, when you start to see asset prices fluctuate and become very volatile, um, you try to think of, okay, well, how can we save, you know, what if, if you always try to think of the worst case scenario, like what if we just completely tank and our market goes flat? Like, do we have any recourse to it? Is there any other way that you can, um, you know, uh, keep the values from totally collapsing and have them kind of stay worn, stable and in tune with other assets, right? So I think what you'll begin to see 
as more and more games start to shift, because we know all the large gaming developers are working on some type of blockchain experience. Like Unity has their Web3 store that came out recently, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so we know that there's going to be a major shift towards the way the assets are basically managed across gaming ecosystems, right? Um, and it, it's going to end up resulting in something very, you know, if it's not just full decentralization, there'll be some, you know, layer two on top of the decentralized network management stuff. Um, so I think what we're going to start to see is really these gaming markets and these decentralized uh, gaming markets uh, really becoming a central hub for the industry, right? And I don't mean like your traditional like asset markets where you can go and, you know, purchase an asset somewhere. Like I know a web asset exchange was like one of the first big ones, but really it, it's not just about like the in-game, uh, you know, uh, let's say non-fungible tokens that usually represent like items or players or characters, right? Um, but really the economic portions of it, which are like credits, or the you know base currencies that are used in these games too, we're probably gonna see the the you know a proliferation of these types of markets uh, over the coming years. Right, I can see that becoming a big thing. And what that's gonna do is it's gonna basically create like a reserve of value for gamers in the space. Right, uh, gaming by itself represents I think like two thirds of all digital media consumption. Like the amount of time that people spend on games compared to other media is unbelievable, right? So imagine that it's going to need some kind of, like if you start to move all the large games over to these types of ecosystems, that yeah. you're going to need a lot of financial support mm -hmm. across all of these things, right? And it, and so uh, one of the, the, probably one of the most eye-opening things that I've seen in recent years is guilds, for example, coming together and acting more like venture capital. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? Where you have guilds out will raise a couple hundred thousand dollars or a couple million dollars, and then all of a sudden they'll start implementing it in projects that are doing things that they want to do, or tokens that have a mission that's critical to their success, right? Or uh, focusing on developing applications specific to an ecosystem, too. So I think that this is, I mean, this is kind of where it's headed. It's almost like uh, people who love gaming so much can now be invested in it as if it were like their own bank and their own you know, retirements, right? Like that's the way people are thinking about it. And that shift is going to require a lot of financial support uh, in total. So I think when you start to apply traditional gaming alongside with like a crowd of people who are getting into investing and doing trading and things of that sort, that you're going to create financial markets that are going to be, uh, I, I'm just saying it's going to be in sync. Um, I imagine volatility is going to be crazy. Things are going to pump like nuts. They're going to dump the same way. Like it's just going to be absolutely insane. Um, but I do think what it's going to do is it's going to provide a mechanism for financing and funding new game development, as well as creating uh, people of interest will be able to invest themselves in things that they know rather than having to do like traditional investment uh, thing. You know, you put money in a Roth IRA, for example, right? A lot of people don't know what's happening behind the scenes. But they do know uh, these types of games are their favorite types of games. And maybe this specific company is building something that, you know, is going to solve a problem. So they would rather take a chance on that than just giving money to a stranger. Right. And that's kind of what we've seen. We've seen, you know, probably now at this point, billions of dollars flow into guilds, which are propping up these economies for a lot of these games, you know, gaming ecosystems. You guys mentioned you have a guild in Splinterlands. Like, we have like 3,000 guilds in there. Yeah. Lots, yeah. lots of guilds. Or lots. Or some. So, how, what's it like working with these guilds and these DAUs and stuff? Like, do you guys meet with them regularly? Like, do they try to influence on like new card design? Like, how does that all kind of work together? Totally. Yeah. They uh, definitely want new cards uh, spec'd out and they want to have input on almost all of it. Uh, we opened up a portion of our um, communication to like what we call our Mavs chat or our Mavericks, right? And there's quite a few people that are a part of that. Um, and they get some more direct communication with the team, but then we also have like our third-party participants, people who are building applications on top of Hive or on top of Splinterlands. And um, in there, our communication is, it's more or less like, we're completely separate entities. We have to treat it as such, right? 
we can't give them any kind of uh, beneficial information about products that are coming out or about things that are going to happen in the ecosystem because that would allow them to prepare before everybody else. And that's not something that we can necessarily uh, have happen. Like, you know, there's obviously a financial benefit to knowing things before they happen. Um, so we have to be very explicit about what information we release to all of our third-party participants. Um, but, you know, with that being said, it's more or less just about support and supporting them. Uh, we've noticed that certain things outside of our, our control can have an effect on these third-party participants, whether it's a market or it's an analytics site or it's a, you know, a treating uh, application to some extent. Um, so there's not a whole lot that we can do as far as like work with them in advance about things that are coming up. But one thing that we are trying to do is institute more security and best practices around the way that we interact with each other. Right? Um, and that's, that's kind of a tough road because you have, again, it's a decentralized network. You have people all over the place. Nobody's really bound to any kind of time commitment, right? So uh, the only thing that you really have is like the financial and economic incentive. Like, hey, we're going to work together and we want to make money. So like, we should make these things a priority, right? Um, but for guilds themselves, um, they are, uh, I would say, again, probably some of the easiest ways to gain attraction and gain attention uh, is just by working directly with guilds because they're incentivized to also work with other guilds. And even though there's a lot of competitiveness that goes between them and camaraderie that comes from that as well, like it helps, it bolsters the whole entire, uh, it just makes everybody a little bit more competitive, right? Um, and that's kind of what you want when you're playing games. You want that competitiveness, but you don't want it to be too much, right? You don't want it to become vitriol or, you know, have anything negative to an extent, but, you know, it is it is what it is. Not much we can do to pop that. But. Yeah. So, Talk to me a little bit about it. So we talked about like, you know, players want new cards and stuff. Like, how do you guys go about coming up with like a new card set? Like, you know, what's your process for developing like new cards and then figuring out like, do they actually work? Like, I, I was talking to one buddy um, a while ago and he used to work on a collectible card game. And he said, sometimes we thought we'd come out with like the perfect card. And then, you know, you know, go to our beta testers or whatnot, and they'd be like, oh, that's like completely useless because I've got this other card from like three years ago that the designers had forgot about that would just like smoke it and stuff. So like, what's your guys' process for coming up with new cards and maybe like testing it and making sure that it's on par before releasing it to everyone as a whole? Well, it's, um, there's a bit of guesswork that goes with it because you can't understand how everybody's going to use a specific feature of a card, right? Um, ideally, what would happen, I can tell you, in a perfect world, uh, most of this stuff would be set up and tested on some kind of Monte Carlo simulation that was inclusive to all the different cards and decks that we have. Mm. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's still very terribly, terribly difficult to do in a timely manner, especially if you're releasing a deck of X amount of cards, right? And the larger the deck, the more... Uh, you know, different types of playing cards that you have, the harder it is to get an accurate idea of what's going to happen. But, well, that might also be a good question. Like, how often do you guys release decks and how many cards are they typically in it? Just so people have like a context here. Typically, we have two major and two minor releases a year, but I'd say that's not limited. Like, we've changed it up and we've released special packs for different purposes. We have a special event coming up, like, we may do special releases for just a single kind of card, right? Uh, right now we have what we call our multicolor cards that are coming out um, right now. It's a part of what we're selling, uh, it's our Zerial cards. Um, but yeah, there's, as far as actually creating the cards, um, one of the things that we try to do is implement new uh, powers and abilities, right? New powers and abilities are tough because um, we have a logic scheme that we have to follow as far as what powers and abilities have to happen in what order and what condition, so on and so forth. So we try to test most of that stuff uh, just internally through use cases. And we have some of our, some, like, it's kind of crazy. Um, some of our biggest players in our game are also, you know, came from the community, became staff members. So they understand the way that the community is actually utilizing the game. Um, and we try to separate them from having any early access to things that are coming out, but we do take a huge amount of uh, sentiment that comes from them when we release new cards 
and we go through our trial and have them test things before it goes out. Uh, that is a that is a major component of new card development. Uh, other than that, it's a very creative process too, like understanding how you know you can come up with the effects of the ability, but coming up with the names, coming up with all of the creative assets that go along with it. Um, our creative department has probably one of the toughest jobs uh, in the whole organization because they are, you know, it takes a lot of time and effort, not only to, you know, create new things, but to understand what's already been implemented and how it works. Right. Uh, so we have a phenomenal creative team uh, who is working around the clock to support us in that development. But um, other than that, like there's not, there's a lot of like pre-baked and pre-canned solutions and a lot of math that can go into uh, automating testing, right? But you never really know until you actually see it in the wild and running in the wild. And, and the other part about it is once it's out there, there's really nothing we can do at that point. Like we can't go and make, you know, crazy changes to the playability or to the likeness of the cards because they're assets, they're on a chain. There's nothing we can do about it, right? So that, that's one of the big problems and challenges that our creatives and our tokenomics people have to worry about. The other one, like, and I hate to talk about it, but it's just overall security, right? Like, um, you know, in these environments, people get hacked all the time. Uh, it's just the way it is, right? So, uh, you know, if we have mechanisms that allow people to lock assets and make it hard for them to transfer, most of the time, you would have to know where you lock those things in order to unlock them. And when your wallet gets uh, compromised, typically the hacker is not going to do all this research to understand everywhere you move things and what they mean, right? So that's another big portion. Like when we do new card drops, we're always thinking like, okay, um, when we can lock these in the game, we're locked in the markets. Like how do we make sure that they don't mess up or that, you know, that they're not transferable by somebody else or you're not giving somebody else permission to move these things forward. And I know uh, that's like, it's always one of my biggest concerns uh, while we're doing this. But Again, it just, you have to have a, a team that knows the ecosystem, right? And that's probably one of the hardest things to cultivate. That makes sense. Have you ever gotten like a a card release that went poorly? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Like, yeah, how did, how just, did you guys handle depends. that? Because, you know, I think it's one thing to do like a, a poor release, but then there's another one which is in the context of you guys, where these cards that are released actually have a monetary value. Like how did your players react to that? Um, so it just depends. I mean, it's so baked in with the speculative portion of a market, right? Like, are you familiar with the term? Like I said it earlier and I'll, I say it all the time. Uh, crypto markets are reflexive markets, right? Meaning that people are, I'll give you a very good example of like a person that's in the, web three space right uh when they sh when they're winning and they're actually doing well they share it with everybody right and they tell everybody like i'm i'm doing really well like here look at my numbers look how i'm doing it right and they share it on social media but when they're losing they don't talk about it right hmm. uh, until they're pissed off right until they're so angry that they say something so people are much more akin to share their wins than they are their losses and that's one of the big reasons why we have such parabolic trends that happen uh, in growth in crypto, right? Like all of a sudden assets go from being, I don't know, uh, let's say 50 bucks to like $500. And it happens, it feels like almost overnight, right? Um, and that's what happens in the hype chain. If you were to look at all Web3 games, uh, search trends on Google and line them all up, right? What you'll notice is you have peaks that happen one right after the other, right? Uh, and it's crazy because you'll see the search trends just go absolutely ballistic. You'll get 2,000 times the amount of search volume on a game. And then as soon as it falls off, there's another game right behind it that does the same thing. And then another one right behind that one, right? So what you're looking for are people that aren't necessarily buying into the game, but they're buying into the assets, right? And the reason that they're doing that is because if something happened previously that denoted X, then if it happens again, you're going to expect the same type of result, right? And so that's part of this reflexive pattern that happens where people look at the past to try to predict what's going to happen in the future. And in doing so, they kind of cause this own manic uh, activity to, you know, 
take a hold and then they become very emotional. It's not about making logical decisions. It's about making, I got to get in before everybody else and I got to get out before everybody else. So you see these big boom and bust cycles happen, right? Now it's crazy because again, like you can just look on Google search, compare all the largest blockchain uh, searches on trends and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And that follows a pattern that uh, we would call the ADSR envelope, which actually comes from audio synthesis. It stands for attack, gain, sustain, release. And so what we want to do is we want to focus more along, you know, the attack is when something kicks off parabolically. The decay is when something falls off because it's no longer uh, popular or they think that they hit the max threshold of the marketplace so people begin to sell, right? Then you have what's called the sustain where the, the price kind of levels out. And then the release is where it just kind of dies off if nothing changes, right? So when you're talking about the frequency of releases and the frequency of drops, that's basically the pattern that we're looking at. So if like you were to do a Google search and search ADSR envelope, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And it splits it up in those four different sections. The idea is to have another release happen before the sustained portion of your market falls off to the release section. And then that way you're kind of have these attack Okay, sustain, attack, case, sustain versus a, attack, case, sustain, release, attack, case, sustain, release, because then you're just building all over again, right? And you're not adding to that critical base number that you need to consistently. So through, through these kind of like cycles and stuff, what does it look like in terms of like attracting new users or like keeping your retention to use? Like, do you see dips in new users coming, dips in your DAU that then kind of correlate back or how does yeah. this play into it? As soon as we start killing bots, uh, obviously we saw a huge decrease in the number of daily active users, right? Um, that's fine. I mean, it doesn't really affect us that much. Really what it comes down to is that, like if, if I had to say, like if you have bad token releases, the problem is, is we either launched it too early or too late in that EDSR curve, in that EDSR envelope, right? Uh, meaning that we launched it too late uh, and it's not going to sell out uh, because, you know, not that many people are interested in that, that portion of the market anymore, or we sold it too early and we didn't sell out because we're selling too many things at one time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so like that's, that's the gauge there. That's like the real uh, metric that we try to follow. Like where is, where are we in that sustain uh, right now in our, in our economy? And yeah, like I said, we've, we've done it too early and we've done it too late before. Okay, Here's something some people might be wondering in the back of my mind. When you guys do this like new card release, do you guys have like a set number of, hey, we're going to sell 5,000 packs, we're done, and you have to buy, you know, all the cards off market or whatnot? Or, or is it more like a Magic the Gathering where I could come in as a single player and I could buy 5,000 packs if I wanted to, you know, it's yeah. in... So there are a limited number of packs, right? And yeah, you can come in and buy as many as you want. We have people that will drop, you know, $250,000, $500,000 on packs and they'll just sit on it. It's, it's, we've had it happen, right? And uh, what they'll do is they'll sit on them and they'll wait for the next release, knowing that, you know, X amount of cards have already been burned on the market, right? So you can assume that if people want to participate and have, you have like, let's say, for example, you want to level up a character from a pack edition that's no longer available, right? Hmm. You got to go buy those cards from the market and you're going to need liquidity in the market, right? So if someone is sitting on those cards, they're just going to wait until it finds the price that they're waiting for and then they're going to release them on the market. Then you have to go back and have to start leveling up your card later on, right? Because it's going to finally create the type of liquidity that you need to, to move on. So it's, it's a give and take, right? Like, if there's enough people buying and there's enough people who are burning cards and it's going to make that happen a lot faster. Um, and as the cards become, you know, older and as more and more of the base level cards decrease, uh, what you, I think it comes down to like, I was talking to our head of sales about this the other day and I, I forget what it was, but the average is, I think it takes like 170 cards to burn to make a max level card. Right. So that's a lot of cards, man. That's, you know, that's 170 of the total amount of cards burned to make one lap, you know, one max level card. Um, and so when you think about it, you know, that that's a huge amount of assets being taken off of the market, right? So again, I, I think it just comes down to like having those metrics kind of figured out uh, 
based on each pack. Like that's what those those types of investors are trying to figure that out early on. They're gonna say, okay, if I buy these cards now and these are the best cards in that series, you know, which ones are expected to be leveled up the most? What's the likelihood that I have those in my packs? They could just hold on to the packs and not open them, or they can open all their packs and just hold on to their cards. Um, another thing that we have that helps out with a lot of this is a rentals market. Like you can actually rent cards and play with them uh, on our market. So if you want to move up to like another league. So what we'll have is people that buy fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 worth of cards, and then they do nothing but rent them out, right? And they'll rent them out until that addition is starting to pick up its price. And those, you know, those cards become more valuable. Then they'll start to sell those cards off. But in the meantime, they're just letting them sit there and earning a yield from the rental markets. And it helps a lot. Very interesting. There's a lot. Like I said, the ecosystem is huge. Man. It's a There's a lot that goes into, you know, making the the types of markets and the the necessities for a game like this. Uh, but that's where all the opportunity is. I mean, it's understanding those opportunities. And if gaming is your thing and you love playing trading card games, then there's probably no better, you know, way to monetize this stuff than playing something like Splinterlands, right? So, you know, and it's also great too, because compared to like traditional Web3 games, um, where like if we did this on Ethereum, we would be out of business. It's just too expensive to operate, right? Mm. The, the, the threshold of getting in on something like that is so high. It's such a high barrier. But because of the way things were built initially, um, it makes it very affordable. So a lot of our user base is, you know, we have a global user base, right? Um, and this, you know, it's because it's affordable. It's something that you can start out with, with like $10, you know what I mean? And it doesn't require, you know, having thousands of dollars in ETH in order to contribute. It's not, or it costs hundreds of dollars to mint a single asset, or even if it's 10 or 20 bucks for a single asset, like we wouldn't survive if that were the case. Yeah. I I remember there there were a few like mints earlier this year where it was like hundreds or thousands of dollars in minting fees. It's like this does not seem sustainable from like a gaming standpoint. People were advocating it's it. like this yeah. is fine. I was like, no, like maybe for like a few elite people, but like normal people are not gonna come into a game that they don't know anything about and be willing to drop hundreds of dollars more than they would spend on even like a top of the line game. Um so I have a friend this year who uh, is excited because he gets to write off the one and a half million dollars worth of gas fees that he had using NFT last year. Crazy. That's great. Right? So, um, yeah, I just, I, it's not conducive. Like we can't build a, a prolific ecosystem if that were the case, if people had to deal with those struggles. Like it's just not going to, but we know that as far as gaming assets is concerned, like Web3 is the best solution out there. And for owning, you know, owning and creating markets for these assets, like there's really no better solution out there than Web3. So, you know, I could probably go on asking you questions for like hours and hours. I can't believe we're like almost at time here. Um, but I do have one final question for you. And it's a question I like to ask everyone because we are on the Master Retention Podcast. Like, What's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to keep your retention higher? Like, how do you keep your players playing for longer day after day, ideally year after year? Um, and I'm going to add a small twist here, like within the context of Web3. Like, Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, okay, in the context of Web3, it's not owning the ecosystem. It's not owning everything in the ecosystem. Uh, we're still so small. Uh, compared to the traditional sense of game, right? Like even though we're the largest, you know, game or even decentralized application running by DAU, um, it, it, man, that's a, that's a tough question just in the context of Web3. Uh, but we actually rely on our third parties a lot, right? And those third parties are allowing people to come in and uh, be a part of the experience. So when we go through these parabolic growth and, uh, fall curves uh, really behind the scenes it's people who are already invested in it you know invested in the ecosystem because they built something or they've contributed to something um so what you have to do is you have to think much more broadly and say kind of like hey we've built this thing that a lot of people like but you know on top of that you can basically do whatever you want with these assets you know you guys own the assets so people have created their own games on top of it they've created their own marketplaces on top of it 
uh, all of their own training stuff on top of it as well. And we should continue to support that as much as we possibly can, even though it's outside of our control and outside of our domain, right? Um, that's what we found is kind of one of the havens for uh, where we find our DAUs, our daily active users, right? Um, and it's just because of that, uh, that we see higher, higher trending numbers, especially when we're not producing things all the time. Like we'll go two or three deployment schedules without releasing like a major thing. Um, but these guys are releasing stuff. If you look at all of them, they're releasing stuff all the time, right? And so I think bringing more developers into the space, bringing larger games into the space that can work alongside of us is where we're going to see the most growth over the next few years. Uh, but other than that, like, man, crypto itself has droves of people coming in and out. Like, it is a huge, you know, revolving door. Um, so if we can capture a small percentage of those people and make them long-term players by having them engage with people, learn the markets and, and be a part of the asset uh, and, you know, understanding how they, uh, you know, value the things that we create, um, then that's just going to poise us to be in a position to make much smarter decisions down the road about releases and things that we do. One other thing that we've learned too is like, you just can't release too much at any given time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we thought that putting things out all the time was great, but people get fatigued by it. Because yeah. as soon as they write, like you, you wouldn't believe how fatigued players can get um, from new things constantly coming out. Because then it feels like, you know, it, it, it looks like we're trying to do a cash gap, and that's not the case at all. It's just mm. all of our development is running at a certain point. We just have a lot of things coming out because we may have some much larger version of the game coming out. So we want to get all these things in order, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it, there's a lot of like premium that goes into it and making sure that people understand that, like, you know, there, there is an order of operations, but nobody really cares for that. It's, we could say it, but at the end of the day, it's like, hey, you know, we want to have fun and we want to, you know, we want these things to gain value. So, you know, you just have to say, I would say, uh, so you have to have temperance. Makes sense, man. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. I mean, yeah, you, Matt. you want to learn more about blockchain or get in, in touch with you or Splinterlands, like, is there a good way for them to do that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so the Splinterlands Discord is huge, right? Uh, we've got over 200,000 people in there, I believe, uh, and 3,000 guilds. Uh, you can find us pretty much anywhere, but the website is splinterlands.com. And uh, there's plenty of content. I do a lot of training on decentralized finance. Um, I have a group in the community called Crypto Monks uh, that's on Discord. Uh, if you could find us, and on there, we're teaching people about liquidity, market making, project management inside Web3 and trying to get people into the space as much as possible. So feel free to check us out. Um, and yeah, again, you know, check out our website at splinterlands.com and feel free to join our Discord. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. All right, take care, man.